Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Welcome to our last episode of 2023. We we made it. Another year. Going to be in the books. Uh, we're also releasing this episode on my dad's birthday. So oh, fitting. Digging into some, we were digging into some dad trauma earlier this week, so which is important and cathartic. So we're closing out the year with a bang. <laughs> um, before we get into this macaroonies, Kylie, why don't you hit us with some cool stuff? It's just after Christmas, if you're listening to this um, shortly after it's released or the day it's released. And we love you so much for listening to us. And that is gift enough. But if you happen to want to get us another gift or two, um, two things that we would really appreciate, one or both. One is if you really love our show, um, it would mean the world to us if you picked an episode that's particularly resonated with you or even like a portion of an episode, a segment of an episode, and you directly shared that with one other person who you think it would resonate with. Um, we'd love to have that word of mouth and just see people connecting through our connections over mm-hmm. movies. Um, that would be awesome. Great gift. Second thing is our favorite place in the world, Metro Cinema, which we talk about all the time, is currently trying to work on their endowment fund, which helps keep them going, helps keep them doing all of the amazing things that they do. Um, and it would mean the world to us if you could donate to their endowment fund um, for us. I, we are going to also do that as well, of course, but um, the more money they can get, the longer they can stick around. And if you live in Edmonton, you can go there. And if you visit Edmonton, you should go there. Yes. Because it is not only our favorite place in our city, but our favorite place in the world. And we want it to stick around forever. Yes, please. That's it. Just if you feel like helping out some Christmas sweeties. Be sweet. Those are a couple ways to do it. Yeah. Okay. Let's get into this macaroonies. A tight four this week. We went back to our favorite place in the world, Metro Cinema, 
or another entry into their Kino Confidential series, which we've covered in the past, but just to recap what that is, it's essentially Metro's version of a mystery movie pick, where leading up to the screening, you don't know what the movie is, they drop little clues. Previously, they've been doing it on social media, but on this particular one, they just had corkboards up in their lobby with photos that you could go and look at. But it was more clues than they usually have. Yeah. Because usually on social media, they would do some kind of like a trivia clue, usually two trivia clues, and then like a still from the movie. Yeah. But this was a full corkboard with probably like 10 to 20 images on it. To their their detriment, because we freaking cracked it. We figured out what it was. And it was the 2001 romance slash comedy movie, Amelie. It was directed by Jean-Pierre Jeannette and written by Guillaume Laurent, as well as Jean-Pierre Jeannette. And the dialogue was written by Guillaume Laurent. And it stars Audrey Totu as Amelie, Matthew Kasovitz as Nino, Andre Desalier as the narrator, Rufus as Raphael, uh, Serge Merlin as the glass man, Clotilde Mollette as Gina, Claire Marier as Suzanne, Isabel Nanti as Georgette, and Dominic Pignon as Joseph. Synopsis. Despite being caught in her imaginative world, Amelie, a young waitress, decides to help people find happiness. Happiness. <laughs> Period. <laughs> Her quest to spread joy leads her on a journey where she finds true love. What do you think of Amelie? So Amelie is a formative movie for me. Interesting because we've recently covered Garden State and Amelie is a movie I was watching kind of in that same time period. But the protagonist was a woman and there weren't a ton of, honestly still aren't a ton of movies that have this kind of like hyper stylism um, and feel cool Mm -hmm. and have a protagonist who's a woman. Um, and so it was one that I like to show to other people in a different way than what we talked about with Garden State. It was more like, here's a cool movie that you don't know about because I am a cinephile. <laughs> yeah. um, because it, I didn't feel the same kind of like emotional kinship with it, but I really just loved it. I thought it was so fun and like quirky in the right way. And it was something that I just quoted on my early social media all the time. I had numerous Facebook status that were... Kylie is nobody's little weasel. Um, and I loved Facebook notes, like loved Facebook notes where I would um, type out lyrics from a song that I liked or type out sometimes a whole chapter or a whole short story um, from a book or like a segment from like a musician I likes blog post. And then I would pair it with a different title for the Facebook note. And then I would pair it with a photo that wasn't necessarily associated with what I had written. Like it not, it wasn't like if it was a quotes from a movie, it wouldn't necessarily be an image from that movie, but it would be a different image that I thought thematically resonated. It makes sense that I'm an English teacher. Um, and there was a lot of photos from Amelie. Like I would do a lot of the images from it paired with other writing because it's quite a beautiful film to look at. This version of you... If you were in a movie, you definitely would have been a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. (laughs) (laughs) Just making my little Facebook notes. (laughs) I'm nobody's Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Um, I love everything you just said because a lot of it, except for the Facebook, the Facebook stuff, I would always do like lyrics as my status. 
like lyrics from songs and stuff like that. Elliot Cuss is going down, down in an earlier out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I haven't watched this in a long ass time and we haven't watched it together in a long ass time. If ever, I can't remember watching this with you, but this was another, like you said, a formative one for me as well. I discovered it in high school and like garden state, it was just another staple of my youth. And I would whip this one out to be a real cool guy. I would kind of bring people in with garden state and I'd be like, check out this French film I have. Is um, it a shocker that we are together? <laughs> <laughs> no, our our Riz is all wrapped up in the quote unquote cool movies that we like. Look at this really cool movie. That that kind of Riz only works on a certain person, and that certain person is us. <laughs> yes. Um, but I I was kind of concerned about the manic pixie dream girl of of it all, and because I, I couldn't remember everything about this film, but as we were watching it this time. It's still as charming as ever. It's not as Manic Pixie Dream Girl as I was worried it was going to be because it's Manic Pixie Dream Girls are in service of a male protagonist. And this is all about Amelie. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of like if Manic Pixie Dream Girl gets to be the protagonist. Yeah. But then she becomes a more developed. I mean, the the whole film is pretty just like charming. Yeah. And there isn't like a ton of depth, but I don't think every movie needs that. No, this is just fun and charming. It, it like it's delightful and it's sweet. And um something I really love about it is the piano score. Yeah. Every time I listen to like if I see Amelie or watch beginners, mm. um, I'm like, oh right, I can play piano. <laughs> and I like to play piano because I'm like, I just want to get that sheet music and play it. So like its whole production is just really lovely. And I think that's why it was a film when we were younger that we were like, I want to show this to people to be like, this is a good movie. Mm. Like, this is a cool movie. And I can't believe you haven't seen it. This is so much cooler than like Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> yeah. Which I also really liked. But yeah, that's uh, I don't know, not to drop any ideas or anything, but. Rad rap. Rad rap on the ocean series. <laughs> Who'd listen? Drop yeah. us a line at yeah. paddad.raddad on Instagram. Um, another thing, when we first started watching this, Audrey Totu, big crush for me. Is that how you say your name? Yeah, I, I looked it up in several places. and I've been saying it wrong my whole life. Yeah, uh, so have many people. I love cheeky French humor. Yeah, this was what I was really struck by watching this again so many years later. First of all, what you said, which is I knew that I really liked it when I was younger. I knew that I had watched it a lot when I was a teenager, but I hadn't seen it in a really long time. I'm not really sure why. But as we started watching it, it all kind of came flooding back. Yeah. Um, And what really struck me is it's quite funny. Yeah. Like very it's funny. very funny. And I, I really like a narrator movie. Yeah. Like we, we rewatched a Christmas story um, a couple nights ago because it's Christmas <laughs> and that's a narrator story. I, I like that when it's used really purposefully. Yeah. And I like a bit of a disembodied narrator. Like I'm, I'm, I, I agree with you. I like any sort of narrator stories, but I do like it when it's a voice that is not somebody we're seeing on yeah. screen. I mean, this kind of to me, it was really the other side of the coin to run Lola run for me 
Like those were two movies that I'd be like, oh, you like movies? You got to watch these two movies. They're both about women and they both have these like disembodied narrators that make it feel almost more like a like a fairy tale, which allows it to to be acceptable as a film that maybe is a little bit more charming and less complex. Mm -hmm. Right. Because we're entering the world of a fairy tale and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm thinking, you know, Edward Scissorhands, where you've got this kind of like opening and closing narration to kind of like create this the sense of wonder and the sense of like, we are entering a story. So I like when that's done really Same intentionally. Like Princess Bride does it really oh, well too. Princess Bride. Oh, check yourself. It's so funny. You kind of said it a little bit when we were watching this, I was kind of taken aback by how well I knew the movie because things were happening. I'm like, Oh yeah, this is coming up. Oh yeah. I forgot about this bit. I forgot about this bit. And I got so swept up in the charm of it. I'm so glad that that was the case and that it wasn't icky or suffered from the oddies of it all. Yeah. Like, Oh, I'm embarrassed. I like this. Yeah. No, I, I think it's still charming. It's one I, I think I'd like to revisit a little bit more often, not endlessly often, but I've been there. This would be a fun one. I feel like our youngest nibbling would like a movie like this Yes. in a handful of, well, in quite a few years, but well, and I think that, Thinking about some of the the camera work and the editing in this, how some of it's just really frenetic, some of it's really fast paced and just kind of odd and there's Dutch angles happening. It just, I can totally see how this would have an influence on the Daniels mm. or everything everywhere. And like, while it doesn't go full maximalist, it plays with that a little bit. It also, it was a well respected movie it was nominated for what at the time was known as best foreign language film at the oscars and then it was also nominated for best original screenplay gorgeous so that's you know probably how it entered the space where just some albertan suburban kids could pick it up when they were teenagers but Mm -hmm. it still felt like wow we like cinema that not everybody we like cinema Cinema. (laughs) still liked it Plus, we got a cool little prize pack for guessing the guessing the movie right, including some metal straws, which we tested out yesterday, and they worked pretty well. No more plastic or paper straws for us. Yeah, we're eco friendly. We're into the suck. <laughs> Ew. Uh, how did Amelie make you feel? It made me feel a sweet fondness for this teenage favorite. How did it make you feel? Still as charmed as ever. We each got one mystery movie pick this week, and mine was the first one. I picked the 2023 drama, A Thousand and One. It was directed and written by A.V. Rockwell, and it stars Tayana Taylor as Inez. Um, as her son, Terry, at three different ages, are Aaron Kingsley Adetola, Avin Courtney, and Josiah Cross. Willem Carlet, or sorry, William Catlett plays Lucky. Terry Abney plays Kim Jones, and Amelia Workman as Anita Tucker. Synopsis. After unapologetic and fiercely loyal Inez kidnaps her son Terry from the foster care system, mother and son set out to reclaim their sense of home, identity, and stability in a rapidly changing New York City. Does that sound like something we'll like? Mm, It's a good synopsis. Yeah. What did you think of 1001? I was so excited that you picked this. And I was looking forward to it because I had heard some buzz around the film, but I knew nothing about the plot 
or anything past that. I hadn't even known the synopsis. Yeah, I actually didn't either, but I I find the title really compelling and mm-hmm. the people who not many people, but some of the people who have seen it on my letterboxed what I mean by that is not many people that I follow have seen it, but the ones who have have rated it quite highly. Mm. And then the cover is really striking. Yeah. It's a really beautiful artistic ren like reimagining of a still from the film. It's really, really beautiful. Mm-hmm. The thing that really drew me in was just its earnest realism. Mm-hmm. And Tiana Taylor is just a powerhouse in this film. And she's she's your focal point. She's what's bringing you through everything. And she rocks the silent, quiet moments throughout. But she can also dial it up in anger, in passion, in love. She brings a lot of beauty and pain to the to this movie in such an effective way. Yeah, that's the thing I've seen across the board, and I so agree with that. Like even folks who maybe found the film too sentimental, which like I'll take sentimentality any day. To me, it felt real. Um, Everybody thinks she's phenomenal in this, and and she just is. I will happily, hopefully, watch her in other things, and she'll get more from this. The other thing that's amazing is this is A.V. Ruckwell's first feature film. Incredible. To me, like, as a first feature, like, it's, it's so gargantuan actually in mm-hmm. in what it spans um and like yes it's so intimate but it's also it's epic in a way mm-hmm. epic in like an angels in america kind of way epic mm-hmm. in a we're spanning this huge period of time for for this woman and these people who are in her life and we're also connecting that to a huge span of time for a city that everybody knows about mm-hmm. um and I personally am a real sucker for media that gets New York correct. And I mean, I'm I'm not an expert on New York, obviously, but as someone who's been to New York a handful of times, it's really easy to tell when they didn't shoot in New York mm-hmm. or when they're trying to like sanitize New York. <laughs> yeah. Like there's a scene where she's walking down the street here and there's just like garbage everywhere. And I'm like, that's New York. Yeah. And you just feel how hot it is. Yep. Yeah. It's really impressive for Evie Rockwell to be, I would put in a similar camp as Charlotte Wells or Celine Song in that these are first features, but they have such a lock on voice and tone and how they want to express themselves through these stories. Really, really incredible. Yeah. And the, the thing that really moved me about this is that at the same time that it's telling the story of Inez and Terry, it's also telling the story of New York. And through both of them, the through line is the failure of systems Mm -hmm. that like systems are designed to fail people or to fail particular people. Um, And the way that that story of New York is told Mm -hmm. is just in these kind of like interstitial moments with like shots of the city and um, overdubbing of mayors. Like I think real audio of mayors talking, perhaps it's real audio or I don't know. It feels, it it felt to me like it was, or at least um, recording, like acting out transcripts from it. And I found that really moving. It really made me think of 
how beautiful a double feature this would be with something like Do the Right Thing. Like, I think they're both such highly specific New York movies, but they're exploring something different about New York. Mm. Both are equally important. Um, Different kinds of failures of systems, but both about failures of systems and then the resiliency of people. Yeah. And the importance of place. Um, A.V. Rockwell... Even though this isn't an A24 film, it does kind of feel like it could be, eh? Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote a, 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 like a letter. You know how A24 does that. So Focus Features did like a letter from A.V. Rockwell about the film. And I won't read the whole thing, but there's this really beautiful, really beautiful quote that I think shows exactly the emotion that she was trying to get across, particularly in relation to New York City. So this is her writing. She said, quote, I was also inspired to write this film during a period when I realized I may no longer be able to survive in the city that raised me. This feeling is distinctly different than leaving home by choice. Native New Yorkers have a deep affection for our city, so to feel like this place no longer loves you back and even actively wants to get rid of you is a painful reality to face. There are key values that give New York continuity in its ever-evolving landscape. It is the epicenter of opportunity, freedom of expression, cultural exchange, diversity, and human vitality. Yet my coming-of-age years were riddled with both large-scale and petty attempts to forego those values in order to fit in with the rest of America. Through Terry and Inez, I was able to explore how that change has impacted its citizens. What's happening is bigger than gentrification and another generation of New Yorkers clinging to yesteryears. What happens when major cities are pushed to assimilate in the way black women have been? How does our world benefit when both people and places are pushed to become homogenous? No black woman feels this distress more than the ghetto black woman. What if the spirit of New York is a quote-unquote ghetto black woman. Inez de la Paz is that personification. Like the New York I grew up with, she's rough and tough, but also charismatic and unique. Living her authentic truth, she is either neglected or ostracized at every level of society. Like New York, she is pushed to change core aspects of her being in order to gain acceptance. Those characteristics speak to both a heritage and a personal narrative riddled with injustice. But instead of being given medicine to cure a cold, she's judged for showing symptoms. That's pretty powerful. Yeah. When I when whenever I hear, and this is gonna come up again in, in the next film we talk about, when I hear a filmmaker, whether it's in writing like that or in like a video, speak with such intentionality about either the craft or the purpose or both of their films, I just can't help but love the films even more because in reading the full letter, I'm like, oh, what I was getting out of it, it was so intentional. I mean, obviously it was intentional, but there was such a fire behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that's beautiful. And I love that question of like, what if the spirit of New York is a woman like Inez and we are pushing women like her out, then there is no spirit of New York left. Yeah. And I think she does such a beautiful job in this film of making Inez imperfect and yet deeply humanly complex and someone that you love Mm -hmm. but she doesn't try and like sanitize her or have her like have this beautifully perfect redemption arc like she continues to be complicated and make mistakes and also try hard and and be amazing and like both of those things are true at once yeah it's done so effectively well. And just speaking to those vignettes where we hear those sound bites of the mayors and the incoming mayors of New York City from the 90s to the 2000s, it does such a great, it's such a great tool 
or device to kind of push the audience a little bit. Cause if we're, if you're feeling a way about Inez that if you're just really, really leaning on the side of she is imperfect or she's frustrating or you're not necessarily fully on her side, those little vignettes do such a good job of highlighting the systems and the rules of these people in positions of power that are hell bent on correcting every quote unquote wrong that exists in the city. And there's just no room for nuance or understanding. It's like, these are these people just, just kind of like a blanket segregation of these people and they need to be pushed out and we can't have this anymore. And I mean, of course, like A.V. Rockwell is using New York because that's her city, but we see that in all kinds of cities, right? Like, in Edmonton right now, there, and I mean, this happens not just once a year, but um, there was a huge push to try and get an injunction to stop the police from clearing encampments, like right before Christmas. Yeah. And we so we see that happening here. And, and one of the things that I kept seeing was the people we know that live and work in downtown areas close to these encampments, they were the loudest voices for don't sweep them. Mm. Like we feel safe in these neighborhoods. These people are a part of our neighborhoods. Like that's what this neighborhood is and Mm -hmm. don't do this. Um, And I'm thinking specifically of our friend Danielle who uh, co-owns shop, uh, the Violet's shop in downtown Edmonton. She had some really like beautiful things to say in their um, neighbors, paper butch, Paper Butch, <laughs> Paper Birch Books um, also said some really thoughtful things about that. And I'm like, so who are you doing this for then? Because the people in those very communities say, we don't want this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the so way, I, and the way they went about it was very, it was fit, like the way the police went about it was very cruel and sneaky. Like they just let all of the shelters in the city. Yeah. They sent them a, a mass email that was just like, we're doing this, so prepare yourselves. Yeah, be ready. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it's. I also think that movies like this are a good moment to stop and think, like, how is that happening in my own city? Like, how is my city trying to push out its own history and the people who have been here longer? And, um, you know, this in Edmonton, this has happened with this, like, revitalization of the downtown core, but what does that mean? It means gentrification. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a euphemism for that. So, I mean, New York has such bigger history and it's such a bigger city, but that doesn't mean it's not happening in other places in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really made me think about that as, you know, we watched this movie and I was seeing this play out and being really thankful for all of the immensely thoughtful people in our lives who, you know, are, are like the A.V. Rockwells of the world and say, like, let's challenge this narrative that the people in power are pushing. Yeah. Yeah, the, there's some pretty scary, not great sides to humanity, but speaking up for the people on the other side of of, of those things. It's important and, and it's I think good. this film does that beautifully. I highly recommend checking it out. We watched it on Prime. Um, it's, or got, it's got complicated family stuff. Complicated family stuff. I cried in it beautifully shot it's beautifully acted this is another one of those movies where i'm like i could easily have watched a mini series of this because i really i thought it created such a sense of place and such a sense of character and i wanted more time with these people Mm -hmm. 
but it's it's really incredible as a film. I just liked it so much I could have watched more. Yeah. Um, so yeah, highly recommend. How did a thousand and one make you feel? Astounded by the power of this masterfully executed story. How did it make you feel? It made me feel moved by this complex exploration of failed systems and resilient humans within them. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Oh boy. Oh baby. We talked about this last week when I pettily, jealously picked the movie The Killing of a Sacred Deer because I was pissy about Edmonton not being a limited release. We were having the FOMO, but the FOMO is no mo. The FOMO is no mo. We got to go see Poor Things. 2023 comedy, drama, science fiction. IMDb lists it as a romance and like, nah. Letterboxd says it's a comedy, drama, science fiction, and that's what I'm going with. Is directed by Yorgos Lanthimos and written by Tony McNamara based on the novel by Alasdair Gray. It stars Emma Stone as Bella Baxter Mark Ruffalo as Duncan Wedderburn, Willem Dafoe as Dr. Godwin Baxter, and Rami Youssef as Max McCandles. And then there's a ton of like great smaller roles that pop up with um, great people that I'm just not going to name right now. Synopsis. The incredible tale about the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, a young woman brought back to life by the brilliant and unorthodox scientist Dr. Godwin Baxter. What did you think of Poor Things? To paraphrase a fellow theater goer from the end of the at the end of the film when we went and saw it in the theater this was so fucking good (laughs) (laughs) truly truly i mean we were seeing the folks that we are friends with and follow on letterboxd who don't who do live in limited release cities i'm posting about this for about a week and giving it fives out of five and telling us we'd love it and they were correct (laughs) and we did yeah, there's so many things I want to touch on here. I mean, first off, this is Emma Stone at the top of her game, at the peak of her powers. She's the best she's ever been, I would say. And we've always liked her. I mean, we've liked her since the Super Bad days, which when we revisited Super Bad a few years ago, we were like, never again. It's not her fault. Yeah. We liked it at the time, too. Oh, we revisited Easy A, too, and we're like, uh-uh. Mm-hmm. But again, we used to really like it. <laughs> um. But we 
after we saw this, we started delving into some interviews and some press pieces that the cast and crew were doing. And I think it was the notes on a scene that her Mark Ruffalo and Yorgos Lanthimos were doing for, I believe, Vanity Fair. But she said, she made a comment that these are the only kinds of projects that she wants to do moving forward are these kind of off kilter, left of center. I think more what she meant was projects that scare her, like projects that make her think, can I do this? Mm -hmm. Because Mark Ruffalo had been speaking about how this was a role where he was like, I don't know, like this is so different from what I've done. Will people want to see me in this? That was scary. And she said, that's the only kind of project I want to do. That's something that pushes her into a new, new type of thing. Yeah, she's so, so good. And I would be elated for her to win the Oscar. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we already want to go see this again ASAP. But I have a feeling that once we know where the whole movie's going and we're not like engrossed in the plot, we'll really pick up on how subtle and masterful the performance is even more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it, it. Yeah, masterful is the word for Emma Stone. And yeah, like you said, Mark, Mark Ruffalo is brilliant in this too. And it's a side of him that I haven't seen in film. And in him talking about this too, there's, I feel like there's a sadness and there's self doubt that he had a lot because yeah, he, he spoke of, should I even be here essentially? And he's built up this legacy within the, the MCU. Yeah. Yet more evidence that Marvel is a ruiner. And even we watched a separate piece with just Willem Dafoe and he talked about how Mark Ruffalo is just he, on set. He was constantly like questioning his validity of being there, which is so sad. I don't think he is anymore. He which is should good. Be. So hopefully yeah. this like pushes him in some new directions as well. I mean, to start talking about the movie proper, like first of all, it's really horny. Mm -hmm. Like I had a few students who, I had it on their radar and I just said, I loved it, but I just want to let you know there is a lot of very prolonged nudity and sex scenes. Just telling you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's hilarious. So funny. It's quite dark and sad at times, but also, I mean, we haven't seen um, Yorgoslan, three of his uh, four Greek films we haven't seen but we've seen Dogtooth and then we've seen all of his American films, um, feature films. This is the only time I would describe the film, a film he's made as hopeful of the ones we've seen. Mm -hmm. Like he's usually so cynical and especially in like the final scene, it's just this culminating cynicism mm -hmm. about the world and how dark the world is. And this film still tackles how dark and sad and, impossible the world is and how shitty humans can be in it but it has a hope for what we can do with that world and what we can do with ourselves in that world despite all of that that usually his films don't have yeah usually i mean look at the favorite it's that's more about like well i'll become that world then yeah if this is what the world is i'll become it yeah and these complex thoughts and ideas and outlooks are all hinged on Emma Stone's portrayal of Bella Baxter, who is essentially a child in a woman's body that is growing up to discover the world. And it, this movie so masterfully uses just very simple, direct language that gets across these really complex thoughts, feelings, and ideas 
making it so relatable and so accessible. And I said to you when talking about this, this is why I like young adult fiction so much, because it isn't necessarily trying to get really heady and in the weeds about stuff. Sometimes it's just trying to be really direct because it is aimed at a young audience. And that kind of delivery really works for me and really affects me on an emotional level. Let me tell you, maybe I'll bring back the Facebook notes to (laughs) do some sections from this movie because... Yeah, there was so many moments from like that line just blew me away. Oh, that line just blew me away. Mm-hmm. Um, something that Emma Stone said about the character, which I found really interesting, especially thinking about I don't write fiction, but I teach students how to write fiction. And so many of them love writing fiction. And we talk about like, well, if you're creating a character as a writer, but I'm sure if you're creating a character as an actor, you need to think about things that aren't just in the script. Like you need to think about who they were before the events of the film and their history and all of this. So Emma Stone said about the character of Bella, quote, I've never had to build a character before that didn't have things that had happened to them or had been put on them by society throughout their lives. It was an extremely freeing experience to be her. Mm-hmm. Like there's no background to do for this character because she's fresh. She's <laughs> brand new. Brand new. <laughs> so I found that really interesting. And I'd be interested to hear, I mean, maybe if we watch the Bradley Cooper actors on actors with her, I just hate him. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we'd hear more about like what her typical process is for creating a character and how because Bella doesn't have a backstory, because we're starting the film with like essentially her creation, how that changed the process for for developing her. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was really, really cool. Yeah. I... I've been really taken in the bits that we've watched since seeing the movie of just insights behind the movie. Like we watched the directors on directors from variety between Yorgos Lanthimos and Ari Aster. I mean, of course we were going to watch that. What a pairing, but there's just a lot of really insightful, thoughtful stuff that each of them brought to the table about Bo is afraid and about poor things and their approach to film and their approach to creativity. And I even think that, they had a piece where they spoke at length about intimacy coordination that exists now and is actually, we learned, mandatory on films now. And I think it's really important to have these two heavy-hitting white cis male directors talking about how they're grateful for the importance and the the presence of these people on their sets. Yeah, I mean, Yorgos Lanthimos specifically said, like, they are, I mean, not in these exact words, but what he was saying was the intimacy or intimacy coordinator that he had on poor things who was a woman was an expert in a way he is not Mm -hmm. so like understanding that like this person has expertise that i do not and so we need her here to make the scene accurate and make people safe um and ensure that like there's a level of like comfort i mean paul mescal has talked at length about um intimacy coordination in normal people which that's a sexy show, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine. I mean, and we we talked about this when we watched Don't Look Now, where I was like, that sex scene in Don't Look Now is really powerful because it feels very real um, in a way that sex scenes often don't. But then you hear about that that wasn't a great experience for Julie Christie. Mm-hmm. And that's really, that's really heartbreaking because I find that scene so groundbreaking and so important. Um And then you have to square away that like she wasn't it's not like she's saying like people were actively harming her, but there was just no thought about taking care of her. Yeah. 
And that's what an intimacy coordinator is there to do to like ensure that people are being taken care of. And I really think we're in a renaissance of sex scenes because of intimacy coordinators and not even just like mm. intimacy coordinators aren't just about sex, right? Like there was an intimacy coordinator on after sun, which there absolutely should be because there are these highly emotionally intimate moments and moments with touch between Callum and Sophie that like they're meant to be like the, the deeply affectionate touch of a father and a daughter but these people are not father and daughter in real life. So we need to make sure that especially the young person is being taken care of in that situation. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine there was an intimacy coordinator on a thousand and one because there are a lot of scenes with like a young boy and his mother, you know, like in there's this really beautiful scene in that of them reading a book in bed together and like, you know, snuggling. And I'm and when we were watching that, I was like, oh, this, this is what intimacy coordinators are for, because it's really important that that little person is taken care of in this. Yeah. Even though it has nothing to do with sex, it still has to do with touch and intimacy in that way. And I'm so grateful that that exists and that, like you said, like big time directors are championing, championing, championing the importance of it. And like big stars like Paul Mescal are saying, like, I would never be on a set that didn't have an intimacy coordinator. It was valuable for him and Daisy Edgar Jones. It's for everybody. Yeah. And I think Yorgos Lanth the most kind of touches on this. Why would you not want to have more experts at different aspects of what you're creating come to the table to bring their expertise to just make what you're making even better? I, I don't know. I was just so grateful for all of that. And I'm, I think that that's really interesting. What you brought up too is that there is more, there is more exploration of these kinds of things that seems to be cropping up in more modern films. And it might be as like, a side effect of bringing more of these kinds of people into the crew so they're able to explore more while still being super safe and respectful. Yeah, I mean, I would I would hope that the reason we're seeing more of it and more of it done realistically and purposefully and well, I mean, I, we haven't seen all the strangers yet. We're holding, holding off on our best of list until we get to watch it, but I've heard there's a lot of sex in that. Um that like actors can feel comfortable doing it despite how vulnerable mm -hmm. it can be. And hopefully directors as well. It might, it must be tough to, to direct those scenes and know that you're asking of your actors to be so vulnerable. Yeah. I thought that that was really fascinating. And, and it's good to hear because it's not like the sex scenes in this movie are tender Yeah, <laughs> and, and, beautiful like they are in normal people yeah um or like i imagine they'll be in all of the strangers they are something else entirely yeah. and to know that people were taken care of in that process and it sounds like mark ruffalo in particular was like i don't like doing sex scenes this makes me feel nervous but the intimacy coordinator was such a valuable thing for him yeah and even just like being on set and like uh shrinking down the number of people that are on set to make everybody feel as comfortable as they can i yeah we could go on at length about this, but it's just something I think we're both really grateful for and to hear more about is is fascinating and amazing. I'm going to go out and I'm going to say that this is the best looking movie of the year. Yeah. And, you know, watching that directors on directors and learning that so much of it was practical. Uh, insane. Is incredible because I didn't think that when I was watching it. But it does feel more tactile. I just mm -hmm. thought it was really impressive visual effects. And it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not. Um, it's it's phenomenal. One thing that I thought was so beautiful to hear, because like I said, this does feel 
a little bit different than where yoga slanthamus has typically gone thematically. Mm. Um, although I do feel like this is such a culmination of like everything we've seen of him. Like it's dog tooth is absurd. Mm-hmm. All of his movies though have humor. Yeah. It, like there's just, this is, there's a maximalism in this that mm-hmm. I think is there in the favorite. But I, I, I read that, Actually, he'd been wanting to make this film for ages, mm-hmm. like before The Lobster, before he really broke into American film, but he didn't have the the name in American film to get the money to make it the way he wanted to make it. Yeah. So he's it's not like he's just like, oh, newest project. Like this is a, a project. And I think that's what him and Ari Aster had in common when they're talking about Bo's Afraid and Poor Things is these are both projects that have been in their minds since before the films that got them the success they're at now. Mm-hmm. And then when they had that success, they now had the ability to go and make that film they really wanted to make. And good for them to have the patience to wait until they can make the film with the proper tools. Yeah. Um, and I find this, he tells this beautiful story, Yogos Lanthimos, about how he wanted the original author's permission to make to like his grace to to make the film. And so he went to Scotland and he met up with him and he was quite an older man at that point. It was before he had passed. And Alistair Gray told him that he had had his friend put on a DVD of Dogtooth <laughs> for him. And he just said, I think you're a very talented young man and gave him permission to make <laughs> yeah, the yeah. movie. Um, and he credits like this, the success of the favorite with giving him the platform and the um, funding to be able to make poor things. And I am so glad he did because this is, I have loved every movie of his that we've watched for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, this is by far my favorite. Yeah. It's incredible. Which is saying something because I love them all. Yeah. It's, it's so well acted. It's so well structured. Uh, yeah. I can't stress enough how just visually gorgeous it is from how colorful it is to how not colorful it is. I love the title cards with the names of the cities that are just this weird abstract moment that's just on screen for a second, but it is some otherworldly shit that's on screen. Um, You love the score. Oh, fuck. The music was so good. Everything just coalesced to make this just such a masterpiece. Uh, I mean, again, to quote another person that was in the theater, might have been the same person at the end of the movie. They said, if what they say, if that wasn't spectacle, I don't know what is. No, if that wasn't a crowd pleaser. Oh, crowd I don't pleaser. Know what it is. There's also, I mean, just because we do talk a lot about bad theater audiences on this show, this was the fourth perfect Cineplex audience we'd had in a row. And I was really nervous for this one. We've had a we've been burnt a couple times recently with advanced screenings of Saltburn was bearable, but still not great. And then we left Priscilla. This was such a locked in audience. It was a sold out show. And it just, it felt like, I don't know if it's because it was before the holidays, like maybe it's just only people who really wanted to see it that were going to come out like a couple days before Christmas. But I don't know if you saw this. You probably read it in my letterbox review, but there was two people sitting beside us and then two people sitting beside them and they didn't know each other. And the, the people like two away from us, they were the only other two people in the theater that stayed till the end of the credits mm-hmm. and they were like an older couple. So I think we once again ran into us in the future. <laughs> yes. Um, but they had, they were already sitting there and then the people who ended up sitting in between us two pairs were like a couple younger guys. Mm-hmm. 
And one of them, I think they were like buddies, one of them got there before the other one. And he was trying to, the numbers in the recliner seats are really confusing. Mm -hmm. So he was trying to figure out where he was supposed to sit. And the older couple helped. They were like, oh, yeah, this one beside, like beside us. And he sat down and he was like, oh, thank you. And they like kind of like had a couple laughs and were chatting. And then he was like, Twizzlers? (laughs) And they took some Twizzlers from him. Gorgeous. And I was like, what a beautiful like theater camaraderie. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know you. Here's a Twizzler. I don't know that like just warmed my heart and then the audience was so great and and here's the thing with this movie I think it's going to get the most attention for its like feminist focus mm-hmm. and it's awesome oh yeah 100%. I'm obsessed yeah if you like daisies if you like Barbie put those together <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll like get. this but actually what I found equally as moving because I do love the this the exploration of women's autonomy and and men's inability to deal with it um to me there's another really important part of what this film is exploring which is can we be different than our parents mm. and it's exploring it in two ways because bella essentially has two different kinds of parents she has the man who created and raised her godwin and then she has like her biological parents which we won't get into like the specifics of it but at multiple points in the film she's concerned that she's following in Godwin's footsteps. And in another part of the film, she's concerned that she's following in her like biological parents' footsteps in ways that she's not happy with. And that also is a through line with Godwin. Mm -hmm. And then I think on a larger scale that becomes, can the, does the world always have to follow in like the footsteps of what came before it? Mm -hmm. Like there's a bigger commentary on like, we don't have to do what's always been done in the past. Like looking at generational change, And then within that, there's this exploration of like, what do you do with learning that the world is a piece of shit? Like, Mm -hmm. what do you do with that? What do you do with learning that this place is cruel and unjust and just fucked? Like, what do you do with that? And that as a whole, it doesn't really give a shit about your feelings. Yeah, it's like it's, it's and I mean, I don't know who of us hasn't had that many moments, of course, but like a really memorable moment of being like oh this place is not good this mm-hmm. world is not good mm-hmm. um and i think so so much of what we've seen from yorgos lanthimos has been well there's nothing you can do about it so fucking deal with it stab your eye out become the aggressor right well, like you know kill your child whatever it is but this film i think has something different to say And I love that Lanthimos is able to explore like those different ways of responding to a cruel and unjust world. And the feminist part of this is awesome. But these other parts about like, what do we do with the cruelty of the world and what do we do with the cruelty of our parents? Mm -hmm. is possibly even more awesome. I agree. It's, it's brilliant. And it, it kind of brought to mind just thinking about this from my own personal experience. I feel like I didn't really hone in on the fact that the world can be a really hard, cruel, awful place until I got into my young adulthood, like early 20s, started going to university, started interfacing with smart people and learning more about things and discovering more about the world as a whole. But I feel with the dawning of the internet and smart devices that young people are learning about these things at younger and younger ages because they have access to it. From such a younger age. I and I feel like aside from watching the news or wanting to delve into like textbooks, <laughs> yeah. That was kind of 
that would have been my way in to learn more about these things that went on. And I don't feel like I would have connected with it on such a personal way that you can when you pick up your phone and are on social media and there's people close to you posting about things that are going on or news that's directly happening in your area or having so much access to that immediate information. So it's, I know that like you've talked about just students are aware of this at younger and younger ages. And that's a tough thing to take on when you're 11, 12. Yeah. Not that it isn't important, but if it's not regulated, really go down a spiral. Anyway, that's a real dark dark thought. Uh, Disconnected from the film a little bit there. But it it brought that up in me because I I do think it is exploring that in such a great way and such a thoughtful way in this film and a very human way. But I mean, essentially, when she is learning these things, she is more like an 11 or 12 year old. Exactly. And that's what brought me there. And I think there's a couple different ways that we learn about the cruelty of the world. I think I was more aware of it earlier because I'm somebody that experiences the cruelty of the world, the injustice of the world more than you do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Certainly not more than a lot of people, Mm -hmm. but more than you. Oh, yeah. Um, And, you know, I distinctly remember being young and learning about what sexual assault was Mm -hmm. and just being like, that's a thing. What? And -hmm. like my world just being ruined forevermore. It was on Maury Povich. That's how I learned about it. Um, and I, like, I didn't understand, they were using the word rape and I was like, what does that mean? And I was at a friend's house and she explained it to me and my world changed forever. I was like, that's a thing that can happen. Mm-hmm. So, like, why does anyone want to be around? <laughs> you yeah. know? Um, and like a genuine fear, like, like that's something that could happen to me. Not that that's something that couldn't happen to a man or a boy, obviously, but it just became this like, because all the shows are about girls. Mm-hmm. so you know I, I think and then there's that larger scale thing of like Bella coming to realize that like there's this great disparity in justice in the world mm-hmm. and so I think the film is actually exploring many of those things there's like gender injustice and there's socioeconomic and there's also like the way Godwin is treated for how he looks and, mm-hmm. and the way his father treats him and so it's looking at this on multiple levels I feel like this film is just going to become more and more insightful the more I watch it I'm going to yeah. see those layers more and more. Not everybody likes it. <laughs> uh, you want to hear an unfavorable review? Okay. From Mick LaSalle. He called it a quote, 141 minute mistake. <laughs> Worst of all, it's dishonest. It purports to be a feminist document, but it defines a woman's autonomy as the ability to be exploited and not care. What version of feminism are these guys trying to sell us here? <laughs> Question mark. So those, yes, those are the type of people who are going to be like, these are red pillars, you know, who are going to be like, that's not feminism. That's men who want women to be sexually active. And that's not feminism. Two questions. I want to know what this person thinks of Barbie and I want to know what they think of Oppenheimer. (laughs) I'm going to say that they don't like Barbie, but they don't like poor things even more. And they love love Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer. Chrissy, no, no, all day. I could talk about this movie forever. You said it after we watched it that we should do a deep dive. And I think we will, but not for a while. Yeah. Um, not until people have had a chance to watch it. Maybe not until it's out on streaming. This is awesome. It's so good. I can't wait to see it again. It's one of we, my faves of the year. We immediately were like, I want to take our buddy Ashley to this, that we can see her react to it. 
experience it again through her eyes. And she was like, yes. So that's next on the docket. How did poor things make you feel? Absolutely adoring of this modern masterpiece. How did it make you feel? It made me feel agog at the smart, hilarious, dark tale of this very complex world and the woman who owns it. (laughs) Yes. Go see it if you can. It's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Last film of the show. And it's my mystery movie pick. I chose the week of the show. You made it sound like it's the last film ever. Yeah. (laughs) Hanging up, hanging up the hat. Uh, I chose the 2022 drama slash thriller Sanctuary. It was directed by Zachary Wigan and written by Micah Bloomberg. And our cast is Christopher Abbott as Hal and Margaret Qualley as Rebecca. Synopsis follows a dominatrix and Hal, her wealthy client, and the disaster that ensues when Hal tries to end the relationship. That's nice and concise and creates a little bit of intrigue. What do you think of Sanctuary? So I want to start with the fact that we were going to be watching a different movie. Um, Gremlins was playing at Metro and we went out with a couple of friends to see it. Lovely. Packed house. Love Gremlins. Gremlins is by far my favorite Christmas movie and just one of my favorite movies ever. Go Um, listen to our deep dive that we did with Jeremy Saunders of Sick Boy. We did it last Christmas. Came out on Christmas Day last year. Yeah. Highly recommend. Um, We were reminiscing about some of the things we said about it and I was like, we said some smart things. And some funny things. Uh, but they they were having a double feature of Gremlins and then the film Dial Code Santa. Uh, Pierre Noel. No, Pierre. Pierre Noel. Um, a French film that people say is like the inspiration for Home Alone or like Home Alone ripped it off. And we were excited to see it. Mm-hmm. When we we got our passes for it at the same time that we got our passes for Gremlins and the person working was like, oh, you might be the only people in the theater. And I was like, won't be mad about that. And it was a very empty theater. Like, I'm going to say there's 10 people in there. Mm-hmm. But we weren't even a minute into the movie and just everyone was talking. Like, it was that that vibe of it's a bad movie and we're just going to chirp it. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm all for that when everyone's consenting and you're in your living room. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to go out to the theater and you're not seeing The Room or Rocky Horror Picture Show or something that's being advertised as a like come talk through it movie. I don't think you should. So like, I just knew I wasn't going to enjoy the process of watching it. And like, we, we tried to move and then we just realized people were talking in all of the pockets of the theater. Um, and I was like, it's on shutter. Let's go home and watch it on shutter. But then we were like, this episode's coming out after Christmas anyway. And you were like, I want to do a mystery pick. So you picked this instead. Yeah. This is a movie sanctuary that I had my eye on when it came out. I was like, Ooh, I like Margaret Qualley. Christopher Abbott's good, um, looks interesting, but I wasn't like desperate to try and make sure I saw it in the theater. Yeah, I agree. Um, and then we like noticed that it came onto streaming recently and we're like, oh yeah, we had been interested in that. Um, didn't love it. Yeah. Like you, I was intrigued by the cast and it seemed like it might be playing in icky fiction a little bit. It is not as icky as I wanted it to be. Yeah. Neither as icky nor as sexy. Yeah. I felt, in terms of highlights, I felt that there were moments kind of throughout that felt a little Lynchian, just in how it was shot, but also how the dialogue was being delivered. And I felt that that was kind of a sandbox that uh, Zachary Wigan was playing in. But yeah, overall, this just kind of fell flat for me, despite some really great performances from two excellent actors 
Yeah, that was the disappointing part of it. You know, I actually sometimes I think Marshall McLuhan, Canadian legend, <laughs> the medium is the message. I think if I had seen this in a theater, I would have been astounded. Like a live performance of this. Because it had that oh, feeling. I see, I see what you mean, yeah. Oh, yeah, not not like not in the cinema. Like if I saw this as a live show, a theater piece. Um, because it had that feeling of like two people locked in performances, but that kind of like dialed up performance that you often see when you see something on a stage. Mm-hmm. And that different kind of suspension of disbelief because you're on the stage, like it's people in front of you and and we all are agreeing to enter the ruse of this together. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought that they both did a really good job, like with the script that they were given. I I was consistently engaged. Yeah. But we did start to get to a point where we were like, okay, what's going to happen? Like it was kind of a movie that at least for us had us trying to guess the ending yeah, which we, I'm not a fan of. Like, I don't usually do that. And I was doing it. And we're like, okay, when is the other shoe going to drop? And we have guesses of what the shoe is going to look like. Yeah. What kind of shoe is it? And where, when the shoe, when the, the shoe quote unquote drops. I hated it. It was disappointing. <laughs> and I became a real bubble burster. I was just like, well, that was a dumb ending. Yeah. <laughs> and I also don't, <laughs> I also don't like when people do that. Um, but I just. I just really didn't like where the ending went, particularly because this film kind of sells itself as one thing. It kind of sells itself as being in like an infinity pool, like like a Brandon Cronenberg or or even like a Yorgos Lanthimos or, or maybe not Yorgos Lanthimos, maybe like an Emerald Fennell and like somewhere in that kind of like icky but fun and poppy, but like even Nicholas Winding Ruffin, like stylish but dark. Yeah. And it honestly wasn't very stylish or dark. Do you know where, do you know where I think you could find a better version of what this movie's trying to do? Go watch Room 104. Totally. If I had seen this as a um 30-minute episode of a anthology TV series, I would have been like that was a good episode of that. Mm-hmm. So again, the medium is the message. But you know, at the end of this when I was like, "Oh, I had been so compelled by their performances. I really like Margaret Qualley. I mean, she's in The Leftovers. I think she's a total babe." Mm-hmm. Um, especially when she gets that blonde wig off and just I, has her gorgeous curly hair. Uh, I like Christopher Abbott. Like, I liked well, him. He, I like. I like him, but he's a. I pity bug bugs. The characters he plays are. Bleh. Yeah, he likes to play guys that really just grate on you. I liked him. I've liked him since seeing him for the first time in Girls because I thought he had a cool haircut, and I've, I've always just remembered that. I'd like, oh, that's Marnie's boyfriend with a cool haircut. But I like when he shows up and stuff because I feel like he can handle the material that he's given really well. And it, these two are just really great at what they do. Yeah, I mean, they, like that's the disappointing part of this is like I actually enjoyed the process of watching the film. You know, sometimes you watch a watch a film and like, yeah, you're enjoying it, but it could go either way. And then the ending really like clinches it. And you're like, that was amazing. Yes. This was the opposite where I'm like, it ended and I was like, Wow. It undid. It undid what I liked about it. Yeah. Um, and I am not the person to be an expert on this, but I thought kind of where it ended up was pretty unethical. Yeah. Like if, if this is a film that's exploring like sex work and particular, particularly like Dom sub sex work, where it goes is not cool. Yeah. In like, in like perhaps a like 12 angry men way where people 
in the field say like that's not actually how that should go. But, you know, in, in 12 Angry Men is in service of a very lovely message. I don't think that. And I mean, I don't think that we need 12 Angry Men to show us what the how the court system works. We don't have a lot of good representation of sex work at all, let alone like the highly specific nature of like a dom subsex worker. And so I was actually really interested in that. And I and I thought especially the first like quarter of the film was exploring that in a really interesting way. And then ultimately, I don't actually think the film is interested in that at all. I think that that part of the film is just there to like get people into the seats. It's a really interesting link and other side of the coin to poor things. Yep. In many ways. I um, I'm just going to say this. This movie feels like it was made by a boy. And that is a derogatory comment. Yep. And I totally. This doesn't it. feel like it was made by a woman who has worked as a dominatrix because that would be a very different movie. Honestly, go watch Zola. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was disappointing. And like, I think they did a good job. I will never watch this movie again. And it's one yeah. that I think you, the listener, can skip as well. Yeah. Uh, I agree. The if trailer's you, better than the movie. If you feel even a little bit like you want to see it, highly encourage you. Go watch Room 104. It's an HBO series by uh, the Duplass brothers. Much better. Uh, or just go see Poor Things. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's very, very good. Yeah. How did it make you feel? It made me feel underwhelmed despite really enjoying some moments. Mm. You? Just let down and wanting something better. <laughs> something better something fresher something better okay let's talk about dads dads of the week who's your bad dad nominee i picked sir duncan Wedderburn. as did i i mean i don't know how you couldn't what an absolute chump <laughs> yeah big chump change chode so i think the thing that makes him not just like a bad character but a bad dad mm-hmm is that he acts like he cares about Bella's agency. Mm. And he talks a big game about like, live your life. And a big game about like, oh, I'm not I'm not looking to be tied down. Like, let's just go have some fun together. Um, but he's really only interested in what he wants. Mm-hmm. And he really only cares about his own freedom and experience. And when he doesn't get what he wants, he's a petulant little piss boy. <laughs> Yeah. In a way that turns dangerous, quite frankly. Um, and I hate him. I loved watching him. No, oh, yeah. But I hate him. Yeah. It, it's I also went piss boy with my <laughs> description. <laughs> yep. I mean, he's overconfident and he talks a big game, but is ultimately a piss boy. He's pompous, he's predatory, he can get really nasty, and he's Overall, a greedy person in every aspect of his life and how he approaches all of the different parts of his life. So he can frick off. So Duncan Wedderburn, don't, don't be, be our, our dad. dad. Who's your bad dad? I picked Inez from 1001. That's that's a good choice. Um, I just felt like, A, I felt like I shouldn't pick everything from poor things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and B, she's... She's got that kind of argument that I gave when when we picked Callum from After Sun as our rad dad, which is she's not perfect. Mm-hmm. She's not a perfect parent because it is literally impossible to be a perfect parent. Mm-hmm. And I think that films should explore that, that like parents are humans 
who make mistakes and who are dealing with their own shit. Mm -hmm. But she is an example of a parent who's dealing with their own shit and still trying and still leading with love um, and trying to understand her own limitations. Like she has a couple just like gutting lines about like how hard it is to do something when you haven't been shown that thing. Mm. Like how hard it is to love when you weren't loved. Yeah. Um, and it's something that you can see she's trying to work, work on. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think she's awesome. And so that's why she's my rad dad. So what you said too about being a perfect parent is impossible. I even think that if that existed, if the perfect parent existed, I still think that their children would still be fucked up in a different way. <laughs> yeah. Like, cause you're now trying to achieve that perfection that your parents have. I actually think an imperfectly perfect parent is someone who allows their child into their imperfections and allows them to see that they're trying to grow. And I think particularly where the film ends, we're seeing that we're seeing some like honest conversations about fallibility and vulnerability and difficulty. And I have a lot of like hope for those characters and how they will just continue to grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, like it's like we were, when we were talking during poor, when we were talking about poor things, is like it's really easy just to continue the cycle of what is easy, even if it means that it's harmful. Mm-hmm. Trying to change or be the th- the the part or the turning point in a tradition or in what is expected is a lot of work, and it's really hard. And I think that just trying your best to try to buck what came before is really admirable. Mm -hmm. So I like, I like that as a, as a rad dad pick. I, I, I went full poor things. I put, I put uh, Bella Baxter. I see. I, I think I would challenge you on that. I think you're going to make the argument that like be your own dad kind of person. Um, kinda. Okay. Try and sell me on it. I think that, Yes, while for sure there is that be your own best dad angle, I was really taken with Bella's appetite to learn and her curiosity. And I think that that's really important, especially from a parent, because you're kind of self-evaluating and you're wanting to improve and you're wanting to expand your knowledge about things and being able to change your thinking from one path to another And I feel like curiosity is not something that can be taken lightly. And she's looking to do good by herself first and then do good by others and finding those opportunities to do so and looking for those ways to do better. She just seems like she's really fun. I like I I feel you on all of that, but I do feel like you're picking and choosing what makes her a dad because I think there's certainly aspects of her that would (laughs) not. I mean, maybe by the end of the film, she has the potential, but through most of the film. And I feel like there's there's that complicated nuance for both of our nominees. But I think that uh, Inez is is the one. I like what you said, and I agree. Okay. Inez. Your dad. dad. I picked a daddy. Is it also Bella Baxter? No. Okay. I'm like, I, okay, Emma Stone is total babe in that movie, but it yeah. feels 
antithetical to the movie to name her as a daddy. Yes, I did not. <laughs> good, good, good. I picked Amelie. Amelie is a daddy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Audrey Totu is, uh, like I mentioned, a longtime crush. And she's just... First time caller. <laughs> she's just so babely in, in this. I find her so charming and very, very cute. Amelie. Wheat Woot. Red Wreck time. Last Red Wreck of the year. Last Red Wreck of the year. I know Christmas is done, but um, it's always a good time after to reflect on how it went. Yeah. Um, this year in particular, we've had we've had a series of years of traditions changing. Like they've kind of been slowly changing, starting with your dad blowing up the family. Traditions had to change on your side. Um, happy birthday. <laughs> happy birthday. Don't be our dad. Um, but particularly in my family with this, this year, Christmas isn't going to be at my mom's house because my mom sold her house in the summer and she's just, she's living in a kind of middle place until she gets her new place and it's just not big enough to host the family. And it just feels, feels different feels different. It feels like it's not going to be the way it normally was. And, you know, we've had like a series of that happening over the years, particularly in 2020. It was like, this isn't, we didn't get together as a family. Um, and something that I've really loved, particularly since 2020 is you and I have kind of been like, okay, so when we're feeling bummed that things aren't going to be the way that they were, what can we do to start making our own traditions? Yeah. Cause we kind of relied on other people to create our Christmas traditions and to uphold those. But when, yeah, when my family's thrown out of whack and things are changing within your family and there's pandemics going on, what's one to do but take responsibility for our own traditions? That's a great way to put it. Yeah, like instead of, it's beautiful to have traditions with other people and we still want those, but to also start bringing in our own traditions that if and when those traditions with other people fall through or are impossible if someone is ill or there's a, global there's a global pandemic that we still have our own traditions to make the time feel special. Mm-hmm. And so that's our rad wreck is as things change and traditions change, start to purposefully make your own traditions and name them as that. Like mm-hmm. you and I have started doing stockings for each other because we both really loved our family stockings and we don't really get those anymore. Mm-hmm. So we're like, we love stockings and stockings matter and, they're a part of our favorite part of Christmas. So let's do stockings for each other. And that's going to be a new part of our Christmas. Um, so as traditions change, purposefully make your own traditions. That's our rad rack. And not even necessarily traditions around Christmas or the holidays. Or any anything. time of the year. You can have a Sunday tradition. Ours is record the podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, love that. Make your own tradition. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. And we'd absolutely love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating review or follow on on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these Not Your Little Weasels this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. Happy Rem- birthday. <laughs> Oops, but remember. <laughs> Not all dads have to be bad.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.